welcome to the Van Life Pantry Nomadic Pantry Podcast, where we talk all things food, cooking, kitchen, pantry storage, and other aspects of life for vehicle nomads. This is episode 21 and the first episode of season two. I started this podcast a year ago in March, and I decided that now would be a good time to break into a season two, and I will just do annual seasons. And I only managed to get 20 episodes into season one, but I do hope to remedy that and have many more episodes in this season two. I started this in March of last year, and last year and the year before were very whirlwind years. Last year was such a whirlwind that I had trouble keeping up and keeping a steady schedule for podcasting and producing video content. I lost two family members to sudden and unexpected death, and there has been a lot of processing going on over the last year. Life continues to flow forward, and we flow with it. So this year, I do hope to have a more steady schedule. I really don't have a specific day of the week that I can pinpoint, but I do plan to try to produce weekly podcast content, and I hope to make it interesting and informational. I have learned a lot during this journey, and that's good because learning something new all the time is one of my life goals. I don't want to stagnate. I want to keep my body and mind active, and learning the nomadic lifestyle certainly provides both of those things. I'm going to discuss three topics today. I'm going to discuss water, an edible desert plant, and the dry air of the desert. If you've been listening, you know that we were able to head to the desert this winter for the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous and for some dispersed camping. For those who don't know what the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous is, it is a roughly two week long gathering of vehicle nomads that happens in the desert in January. It usually is in Quartzite, which is where it was this year. And it is just a gathering for people who want to learn about nomadic life, people who are living nomadic life, and who are on a budget. It is very uh, budget-minded. It teaches people how to do this on a lower cost level. They offer workshops, which are usually just um, lectures, little question and answer periods for people who have questions. And I mentioned in my recent podcast that some people found that part to be boring and left during that part. But the other parts are getting to know other nomads, which I really enjoyed, and getting to see other people's vehicle builds, which was really enjoyable as well. So um, that was the fun part of the desert gathering this year and um, this next year I plan to do a van life pantry nomadic pantry gathering probably roughly around the same time of year we are hoping that we can do an informal just you know people camp near each other and um, meet each other and cook together 
So stay tuned because that will be developing as this year progresses and I hope to have that be roughly the same time of year that the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous is meeting and we plan to do it in Quartzsite and I don't know if RTR is going to be in Quartzsite next year. They may actually choose a different venue but um, anyway we will develop that as it goes. We are not affiliated with RTR and we are not going to do a large permit for a large gathering because we're not going to be doing a formal gathering with everyone at the same place. We're hoping to do something where people do camp near each other, however, on dispersed camping uh, Bureau of Land Management land. So stay tuned for that. And now let's get into today's topics. The first topic is water. Water is so important. When you are in your house, you turn on the faucet and water comes out. And it's amazing and you don't have to think about it as much. And some people don't like tap water, so they order water or they buy bottled water. And some people are more used to doing that than others. But in the nomadic lifestyle, water becomes a precious commodity, a precious resource. Well, it, it already is precious you realize how precious it is when you are living a nomadic lifestyle, much the same way that you realize how precious and difficult to obtain is electricity. So all of your resources become so much more important in ways that you didn't realize. And water is definitely one of those. So you have to have it daily, you have to drink it, you need to use it to, you know, keep yourself clean with, whether you're bathing or or um, just using it for hand washing or dishwashing or hair washing, you need to have water. So we usually carry six to ten gallons and we're actually considering making that more like 12 to 15 gallons at a time. We refill our water at refill stations, which sometimes can be hard to find. Because of the glory of the internet, you can Google water refill stations near me and you can get a list of stations that are near you if you have allowed your phone to be located through its uh, GPS coordinates. Otherwise, you can Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever is your search browser, you can use the search terms water refill stations in, you know, whatever town you're in, and it will come up with the answers. And then you can go and find those water refill stations. There are usually water refill stations in some of the larger supermarkets, and they often only cost about 25 cents per gallon. I've noticed that Sprouts and, and maybe Whole Foods and some of the other markets that are considered higher end or higher cost have gallon water at 35 cents a gallon, which is really still a bargain if you are just filling your own container because buying one that's already full is much more than 25 or 35 cents a gallon. So we like to carry square containers because they are easier to store next to other things than the round containers are. They're easier to fasten down to keep them from moving when you are moving. That is a big thing, of course, as I've mentioned before. Anything that 
can be fastened down should be fastened down so that it is not moving when you're moving. Um, we have the size of our containers are either one gallon containers or three gallon containers and we do that so that you don't have one huge container taking up a lot of space in one place. Little one gallon containers can be put here and there throughout your rig and that allows you weight distribution and it allows you uh, the ability to um, store things in ways that you need to so that you're not accommodating a very large bulky item. It's important to remember that water weighs about eight pounds per gallon so you need to make sure that you are mindful of how much you're carrying and how much it weighs and how much weight you're distributing here and there around your rig because you don't necessarily want 80 pounds in one spot because you want to be evenly distributed uh, especially true if you're pulling a travel trailer or, or some sort of trailer behind you. The other thing is we use a USB rechargeable spigot so that we can have the bottle upright and we can just turn that spigot on and it works just like a faucet which is very helpful. Keeps you from overusing, keeps you from overspilling, um, it keeps everything kind of neater and cleaner and uh, makes your smaller bottles easier to fill from the larger bottle. So if you don't have a rechargeable USB um, faucet spigot, you might want to look into that. There are several types on the market, several brands, but really they all look very similar and uh, I haven't really heard of one being subpar to the others. Um, another thing to know is that you need a backup because when we were in Quartzsite especially, when they get an influx of people in January, they grow from a town of about 3,500 people to a town in excess of 500,000 people. And it really taxes the resources of the town during that, definitely through the whole month of January and into part of February and sometimes starting in December. So when you get to some of the water stations, you'll find that because of overuse, they are having some issues. We encountered some that would take your quarter, but the quarter wouldn't actually drop down into the machine to start the water. So they would get stuck in the middle. And we found some that did take the money and it, we heard it go down in, but then there was no water coming out. So the water facility was either one that was filled and not continuously connected to a water source and it ran out of water um, or it just happened to have some sort of malfunction in the delivery system of the water. So you need to have a backup plan and you need to carry extra quarters just in case. Um, we were lucky enough to have the person who manages the water station come right out because they happen to be in a laundromat building nearby and uh, refunded our couple of quarters that we had already lost. Because if you put a full three gallon worth of quarters in at one time um, in some of the stations, you get an extra gallon. And so we feed it more quarters at one time. And then of course, 
when it doesn't work, you lose more than one quarter at a time. So we were able to get our, our quarters back and then we just were able to go to the other side of that filling station and fill the water. But those are important things to know when you're looking for water stations. And recently we were closer to Phoenix, Arizona, and um, we went to a water filling station and all three of its water filling stations were out of order. And so we had to, you know, do a internet search to find where's the next closest water fill station. Um, and if you have gas price issues, <laughs> you know that you don't want to be driving around um, aimlessly looking for those things. You want to piggyback your trips so that you're doing more than one thing at one location if you can. Um, we happened to be near a place recently that had a grocery store, a water filling station, and a Planet Fitness all in the same um, parking lot area, the same shopping center. That was a bonus. Uh, if they had had a laundromat, that would have been a triple bonus because in the place where we were, the, actually the closest laundromat was 12 miles from that spot. And um, that means more driving and more gas cost. And right now, gas where we've been is just a hair under $4 a gallon, but I've been getting reports from various nomads who have been saying it's closer to 6 and even in Death Valley area, seven fifty was reported recently per gallon. I also uh, had a nomad report to me that um, parts of Canada are currently up to the equivalent of $8 per gallon of gas. So it's going to get rough. It's rough now and getting rougher. Um, so those are important things to know so that you can minimize your need for extra driving. But you do need to know that refilling water is a constant chore. We use at least two gallons a day. And it's funny because I was told that some municipalities, when they're deciding on, you know, approving campgrounds, they calculate that each camper uses 100 gallons of water per day per person. <laughs> I don't have any idea how someone per person on a camping trip, especially dry camping, would use 100 gallons a day. It is completely ridiculous. Um, but some people do use two to five gallons a day per person. That just depends on what you're doing with it. We tend to use two gallons a day for two people and our pets. Um, and that's for everything. That's for washing dishes. That's for making coffee or tea. That is for cooking, uh, hand washing. We do Planet Fitness for showering or other private showers. So um, we don't bathe with our daily water. But um, Anyway, at least a couple gallons a day. So if you're boondocking and you want to stay put for seven days or 14 days, then you're going to need more water. You're going to need, you know, 14 to 28, 30 gallons of water to get through a week or two without having to go in. We tend to camp where we're actually just a few miles from the nearest something. So if we needed to go get water, it's not very far away and we don't have that problem. But I know there are people who like to boondock in places that are <laughs> 10 miles out or, you know, out a washboard road, two, even two miles out a washboard road 
and uh, they don't want to have to keep coming in and out. So water is important. The amount of water you carry is important. The weight distribution of the water you carry is important and knowing where and how to refill it is important. Um, so that is what we have to say about water. Next, I want to talk about cactus. So because we have been able to visit the desert this winter, um, and I'm always looking for things to forage, things that you can learn to forage, what natural wild foods are available in a place, I have been studying what is edible in the Sonoran Desert. And prickly pear cactus, as I already knew, was one of the edible plants that exists here. And uh, I've encountered it in California in previous years in certain supermarkets. There are grocery stores that carry the nopales or the uh, prickly pear paddle. Some call it the paddle, which is the big round leaf of a prickly pear cactus. And those are edible and they um, are used in cooking. Some, some cultures use them much more prevalently than others. But I've been looking into what can be done with prickly pear. So the prickly pear cactus is a type of cactus that grows in the Sonoran Desert. It grows in parts of the United States and in Mexico. Um, it is called nopal, or the paddles are called nopales. And um, it is. it also grows a fruit, a, a, a round reddish fruit at certain times of the year. Uh, well, one time of the year. You have to be able to catch that fruit when it's growing if you want the fruit. So the paddle is edible and there are ways to prepare it, but also the fruit is edible. And the fruit is highly sought after and used in many ways. So it is um, actually recently, it is being called a superfood because of the antioxidant properties, the antibacterial properties, the vitamin E content, the linoleic acid. It just has some really great qualities to it. Um, it can be used in candy. It can be used in jams and jellies. I most recently encountered it as fudge and that was really yummy, I must say. I found some gluten-free fudge in one of the local historic towns and they had prickly pear fruit fudge and um, it was tasty. We tried it. It has a little bit of a flowery taste to it. Um, if I were going to compare it to ice cream, I would say that, you know, chocolate fudge is like eating a creamy kind of ice cream, uh, chocolate ice cream or Rocky Road or something. The prickly pear fudge would be similar to a sorbet or a gelato. It is a lighter, flowery, pink flavor. <laughs> it's a very, very pink fruit. Um, anyway, it contains a lot of vitamins and minerals. It can be eaten raw or cooked. And it can be also used in wine, vinegar, candy bars, cookies, pie, and there are plenty of other uses for it as well. 
Harvesting can be tricky because it is a cactus with all kinds of pricklies. <laughs> I don't know that that's why it came up with the prickly pear name because there are other cactus that are so prickly and they're not called prickly. But anyway, it has a lot of spines that will damage your skin and are painful. It has the larger spines that are easier to see, but it also has the little fuzzy ones that just tend to get everywhere and stick in you and you can't seem to get them out and they last for weeks. If you are harvesting these and you happen to get stuck with the spines or the little tiny fuzzy spines that are harder to get rid of, one of the ways to do that is to use tape or glue and coat your hands with that on the palms and the fingers, wherever those stickeries are, and then pull that off, almost like waxing. You Actually, you could probably even use a waxing method um, if you had some hot wax available. And you would just coat that area and then rip it off <laughs> so that you can pull out those spines. Um, but one of the, the conventional wisdom ways of harvesting is to use tongs and put it into a, a, maybe a paper shoebox or some other kind of container. You can even use a plastic bag or whatever you've got to carry it in, but you want it to be something that's going to contain it so that the spines don't stick through the container and stick you that way. Um, if you don't have tongs, you can definitely, of course, just use leather gloves. And um, then the way to get the spines off later, I've seen a couple of different ways. Some people like to use um, kind of a shaking method and beat the cactus against the box, sides of the box, or against another, um, some sort of container on the inside. Others just use a knife. So you're going to use your tongs or your leather gloves and hold the item and you're just going to scrape the uh, cactus fruit or the uh, paddle with your knife and you're just going to scrape all of those spines off and of course you want to dispose of those in a place that isn't going to harm anyone and isn't going to be somewhere that you step on later so um, they are just vegetation so I'm sure that you can put that vegetation back under another piece of vegetation out in the desert or you can throw it away in a trash receptacle um, but that is the way to get the spines off and that is the way that I have been told to harvest. And of course, if you buy from a store, you're going to get it already harvested and already despined. Um, I have not seen the nopales, paddles, or the fruit available fresh in a store anywhere in my travels this year. Um, but I have seen those paddles in grocery stores in the past in various places. So those are things to look for. And of course, um, the thing to know about when to get the fruit is that it ripens in usually um, September through November. Those are the, the season for the fruiting of this cactus. And um, one other name for this cactus, well, I guess the real name for this cactus is Opuntia cactus, but everyone just knows it as prickly pear. Um, so the fruit actually is very similar in some ways to a fig when it's opened. The, the inside of it looks a lot like the way a fig looks. 
And um, another use for this plant and the fruit itself actually is in beauty products. It has become a popular plant for making oil, like a carrier oil for essential oils or a skin um, rejuvenating oil because of its vitamin and mineral and antibacterial properties. It is very sought after for that. But the way they get the oil is actually by pressing the seeds of the fruit. And the oil is very expensive because it takes an inordinate amount of these seeds to make one ounce of the oil. So um, for that reason, I hope that, you know, there are farms for this instead of, you know, taking these from the wild because a prickly pear fruit is hard to come by and it only happens once a year and the seeds are tiny and it takes a very high number of them to even get one ounce of oil. And so um, I would hope that there are farms to harvest these. I haven't gone far enough into it to find that out. But anyway, just know that you can find it as prickly pear oil. You can find it in um, face and skin products. And you can find it in edible items that are already prepared. We, we found it as candy. We found it as lollipops. We found it in a various other ways. Um, so if you are encountering it in the desert and you want to forage for yourself... You need to make sure that you know exactly what prickly pear looks like and that you are choosing what actually is a prickly pear. So you should never eat any plant that you have foraged if you don't know exactly what it is and you are not experienced in foraging and finding it. Um, I am getting there, but I am not confident enough to go foraging certain things yet. I learn about foraging everywhere I go and I add to my knowledge base every time that I learn something new about this, which is another thing that you, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm always, my goal is to always keep learning. Um, so if you do know that you've identified it properly and you do know that you have harvested it properly and you knew how to do that, um, you are good to go. You want to make sure that the plant has, um, additional fruit and paddles available so that you're not over harvesting one plant and you don't want to over harvest one area. So, you know, take only what you need and make sure that it is legal to harvest wherever you are. And if you are growing them privately or you know someone who grows them privately, that's even better because you can definitely harvest those. Um, that's not so much as wild foraging, but it's you know, I think that foraging with permission on private land is also still foraging if you are gathering something from the wild, from its wild. <laughs> Even if it's a garden, you're still foraging. One last thing that I learned about harvesting the fruit of the prickly pear is that it turns from green to kind of some pink or yellow coloring as it is ripening. And you want to pick them when they are in their halfway ripe stage because prickly pear tends to reach its peak sugar content halfway through the ripening process. If it continues on until it really gets to the full color change, then it has turned mostly to starches and kind of a pithy content that won't be tasty and won't really be as usable. 
So you want to pick it when it is still somewhat um, bright yellow, greenish, or just barely beginning to be pink. At least that is what I have read. So um, if you are in the market for foraging or eating prickly pear, let me know. Enjoy the fruit and um, this coming fall when it is ripe again and it's available again, let's see if we can harvest some or buy some or find some and eat it fresh and then we can share our experience. And that's all I have about the prickly pear. That is just one piece of edible desert flora. So we now will move on to our next topic. The last thing I want to talk about is the dryness of the desert and how if you aren't used to it, you might have some adjustment to do. Um, one of the first things that I noticed and I have come from the Pacific Northwest where it is much wetter parts of the year and there is more moisture in the air. Um, I noticed that I had really scratchy eyes for the first two weeks that I was in the desert region. Um, they just felt like every time I opened and closed my eyes it was scraping across my eyeball something was <laughs> my eyelid was <laughs> scraping across my eyeball it can be very painful and I don't carry eye drops or use that but I do want to tell you that hydration is extremely important when you are going into a dry environment a dry climate a desert region you don't even really think about it necessarily but your body loses moisture just by being there. Um, your skin gets drier, your eyes are dry and scratchy, your nasal passages are very dry and scratchy, and um, you really can feel like you are covered in grit. There is a lot of wind, and even when it's not windy, there is a breeze that happens through the desert, especially at certain times of the day, and more at certain times of the year, but almost always there's going to be a breeze certain times of the day here and there, especially through the winter time. Um, and on that breeze is carried minuscule, invisible bits of grit, sandy grit. And you can actually feel sandblasted <laughs> by the end of a day or by the end of a week in the desert. And so you want to know that you need to carry it. Like I said, the water earlier, you need enough water with you at all times. You need to drink enough water at all times. Don't overdrink. Um, I was reading recently that someone says they drink two gallons of water a day. I personally would recommend that you don't do that because um, if you over drink, and most people shouldn't have more than a hundred ounces of water a day, and I think a hundred ounces is really at the top end, um, you can wash away your electrolytes and then you get an electrolyte imbalance and that can actually be dangerous for you. So um, you don't want to overdrink the water, but you definitely want to hydrate because you do need to hydrate all of your mucous membranes, your nose, your eyes, even just your skin. Everything needs to be hydrated and the desert really sucks it out of you. <laughs> we were laughing and joking that um, 
there isn't really anybody elderly in the desert. They just look like they're elderly because the air has sucked all of the moisture out and wrinkled everyone up. <laughs> anyway, no offense to anyone who is older because aren't we all getting there? Um, but we just thought that was fun because we are starting to definitely look like we are a little bit desert uh, dehydrated. So I upped the water intake. I've always had trouble making sure that I drink enough water daily and I've really had to be mindful of that in the desert. Um, you may experience some sinus adjustment. Um, there may be some allergens that you aren't used to or you know just the dust just the dust in the air itself may be difficult for your body to get used to and so you may suffer a little bit with sinus issues for a week or two or three and um, that's you know you just know that that is an adjustment. I've known some people who ended up with sores inside their nostrils inside their nasal passages from the dryness of the air and just from not being able to get enough moisture and breathing that dryness and like I said sandblasting your nasal passages. Thankfully I did not have any issue with the sores but I did have a little bit of sinus adjustment and one of the things that I have found helpful is something that I actually had in my uh, herbal applications arsenal before I ever even came to the desert and that is Baraka dry nose oil. It comes in a little bottle and it has a little dropper and you just use one or two drops or three drops and you put it on a q-tip or some other applicator. Um, if you are comfortable using your finger in your nose, which I know is frowned upon all over the place, but uh, for medical applications, I think that's just fine as long as you are able to also wash the hand after. Um, but if your hands are clean and sterilized, you could use the tip of the finger and just rub the, just the outside edges of your nostril with this oil. Um, if you're going to put it further into the nostril, definitely probably a cotton swab would be better as long as you know that the cotton swabs are also sterile and don't have any um, anything on them that you don't want in your nose. Um, so yes, you can use this nasal oil and it helps to moisturize the inside of your nasal passages and keep them a little bit safer from the sandblasting that they might be getting from all of that fine grit going in and out. Um, people in cooler, wetter climates or more moist climates need to worry about mold inside their vehicles inside their trailers, inside their RVs, whatever they're using, um, because molds tend to gather, especially if you are indoors and breathing, <laughs> and you always want to have window ventilation so that you don't have a mold problem. But in the drier desert climate, you don't so much have to worry about the mold as you do have to worry about the dryness damaging your membranes. Your, your body membranes. And so in this environment, you may want to do a diffuser or some other sort of small travel item that will humidify the air a little bit for you. I found that my home diffuser was way too big and it put out way too much moisture. You, and, and I don't have a high top vehicle, so you don't want the headliner or the roof 
whatever you've got in the roof of your vehicle to have too much moisture from the diffuser. So you definitely want to look for one that is made for vehicles. They do make little, very small travel um, diffusers. I actually have a 12 volt Actually, mine is a USB connection, so I can I can plug it in. I can actually run it from my laptop if I want to, or any other um, spot that has a USB connector. But anyway, it's a very small electrical draw, and um, it is a much smaller in terms of its dimensions, its size, and it puts out a smaller amount of moist air. But it is a good thing to have to help moisten the air and you can use whatever essential oils you like as far as, you know, being therapeutic for whatever you want to do. You, there are many um, combinations of essential oil for the scent and various properties depending on what you're looking at and what you're wanting to accomplish. But just, you know, if you're just wanting moisture in the air, you can choose almost any one of them um, that is safe for you. And if you have pets, you want to make sure that you also remember that certain essential oils are not good to have in the air around certain pets because certain oils can be toxic to your animals. So um, you want to look up which ones are safe and you can use that. Otherwise, you can use a very small uh, portable humidifier or some other something that helps you moisturize the air because um, especially if you're not used to the environment, like I said, it can be a pretty big adjustment if you're staying very long. Uh, if you're just passing through for a week, you're not probably going to have these problems. But if you're staying, if you're wintering in the desert, um, you probably need to know these things. So that is my season two, episode one. <laughs> I have made it one year of doing this. And I, like I said, I hope to pick up and be better at it in this year. Um, I hope to continue to grow at this and get better at it. And um, even though I'm still really not going to be editing the podcast, I'm trying to get a little better at editing the videos and making them more inviting. Um, my fledgling YouTube channel doesn't have very many videos and of course they are not <laughs> extremely polished um, but as you know that is of course how I roll uh, even though I'm always trying to better that I I don't want to not do it until I'm perfect because I will never be perfect at it and then I will never do it so I'm um, still going to continue to put these things out there and um, you know I've learned a lot of things that uh, maybe somebody just starting out doesn't know yet and so uh, I think that those things can be valuable to help others on this journey. So um, one thing that I found unexpected was that I really like Arizona. When I was growing up, I, I didn't care much for the desert. I didn't like the hot and the dry and the dusty. And I'm always have been more of a forest, um, you know, Sierra Nevadas or um, Cascades or, you know, any other high mountain range with redwoods or you know all of the pine trees of the forest and all of the cool damp environment where ferns naturally grow <laughs> and all of that um, or a desert uh, a beach person um, I've always enjoyed you know the the ocean and um, being able to visit that so I didn't expect to really like Arizona much uh, but what I've found is there is a different kind of beauty here, 
that I now am able to appreciate. There are gorgeous sunsets and beautiful sunrises. Uh, the desert does sun, sunrise and sunset unlike many other environments are able to do and you get some really spectacular beginning and end of the day. And if you can just sit quietly and watch the sun sink down at the end of the day as it says goodbye and as it cools down and as it streaks its orange and pink and yellow hues across the sky and mixes with the blue and the purple. Um, it really makes a nice end to the day. And the morning, of course, in the desert is almost always very bright and cheery. It is a very happy, bright way to begin the day. And, um, you know, soaking up the sun and getting all of that vitamin D production in your body going is a very good thing as well. So I uh, have learned that I actually do have an affinity for the desert and I am really enjoying um, learning history of all the various places. There is such rich history to learn and many of the small towns have embraced that history and been able to turn it into um, content that is easy to take in and interesting and they really do attract people to their area for learning these things and enjoying what the area has to offer. So if you haven't wintered in the desert ever and you get the chance, uh, I highly recommend it. I think it has been a very enjoyable experience. It's been a good learning experience. And thankfully, I have not encountered any desert scorpions. I have not encountered any desert pack rats. I have not encountered anything yet that has tried to kill me. <laughs> uh, no javelina, but those do exist. And I think on the next podcast, I'm actually going to talk about some of those because we are getting into spring and everything is waking up. And I am starting to see evidence of the creepy crawlies um, starting to emerge. So that hopefully will be something that we talk about in about a week because I, I plan, I hope, I try to um, do this podcast on a more weekly basis through season two, which will last from March of 2022 to March of 2023. Um, as long as everything continues to go on as I hope, as I plan, as I wish. <laughs> anyway, um, I went a little long this time, but uh, I, I don't think that I will, tr I will try to keep it to half hour as I had been doing, even though they're somewhat variable. I usually run 32 to 37 minutes. I'm closer to 45 today. Um, but I do hope that something I've said has been useful to you, enjoyable to you, and uh, the fact that we can forage and find food wherever we are means that I can share food information that doesn't just involve grocery shopping, restaurant eating, or, um, you know, cooking something that you had in your fridge. Uh, but I share all of those things too. And I do also plan to share more about restaurants. My original goal, I mean, I started this to talk about healthy food on the road and ways to avoid always eating out. 
And of course, when you're on a budget, you don't want to always eat out. You don't want to always eat restaurant food because it isn't good for your body to always eat processed food. And, and, you know, restaurants do use processed food to make what they make. It comes, you know, prepackaged on a truck and then they cook it. Um, so I don't want to always do that, but I do want to share the places that I encounter because there are some really good restaurants and there are some really good um, little local spots that if you are traveling you may not want to miss and I plan to share those this year as well. So in addition to the cooking, the food, the pantry storage, we're going to cover the ampersand, the things about life, the van life, the sunsets, the sunrises, the wind, the grit, um, Oh, and last thing before I go, I meant to tell you, the grit on your eyeglasses. If you wear eyeglasses or sunglasses and you don't want them scratched, you must know that if you're in the desert for any time at all, like more than 12 hours, you are going to have a fine grit on those glasses. And before you clean them, you want to make sure that you wash them with water, not just with um, your spritzer solution, because you don't want to scratch that grit into the lenses of your glasses. Anyway, so that's all for me today, and I hope you've enjoyed this time with me. I have seen some of you down the road, and I hope to see more of you on down the road in the future. Enjoy the day. Enjoy the afternoon. Enjoy the morning. Enjoy the sunrise. Enjoy the sunset. Until we speak again.